Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, April 18th, 2017. Coming up, we'll hear from a local scientist who has helped create a movement known as 500 Women Scientists. And we'll talk about the March for Science on Saturday's Earth Day. We'll also talk with a scientist at Colorado State University whose team has created a better way to map methane leaks by using Google Street View cars and Google Maps. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Could there be life on other planets? For most of the past few decades, scientists have been looking, mostly on Mars and a big moon orbiting Jupiter named Europa. Last week, a little moon of Saturn emerged as another candidate. That moon is named Enceladus. Enceladus is a ball of frozen ice water. It's Saturn's sixth largest moon, which means it's pretty small, only 500 kilometers wide. That's roughly 300 miles across. But Enceladus is big in another sense, because scientists have known for years that Enceladus has two of the three key ingredients likely needed for life. The likely ingredients for life are liquid water, energy, and nutrients. NASA's Cassini spacecraft orbits Enceladus, and over the years, Cassini has recorded large plumes of water bursting through its crust of ice. So underneath that ice, Enceladus probably has an ocean of liquid water. And since it takes energy to create water plumes, Enceladus also has energy. What's been missing is proof of nutrients. Now research published in the journal Science indicates that Enceladus does have the third ingredient needed for life, meaning nutrients. And while it's not enough to make bread and cheese, the nutrients on Enceladus might be enough to feed some single-celled forms of life. Here's what's up. New data from the Cassini mission indicates that sometimes molecules of carbon and hydrogen waft into space above Enceladus. The carbon hints that deep in the under-ice oceans of Enceladus might be a rocky center with hydrothermal vents. Even more exciting, hydrogen and carbon are food for a family of microbes known as methanogens. It will take years of research to get more definitive information. In the meantime, this new data about Enceladus is a reminder that extraterrestrial life might show up in surprising places, maybe in our solar system. This Saturday is Earth Day. Millions will celebrate Mother Earth by heading outdoors. Among them, Thousands, maybe millions of scientists and science lovers will take to the streets to take part in the so-called March for Science. The main venue will be just down the street from the White House in Washington, D.C., but affiliated marches will take place in Denver and many other communities around the world. The mission of the event is to celebrate science and to raise awareness to the need for science that upholds the common good. Organizers are also urging political leaders and policymakers to enact evidence-based policies in the public interest. The march comes partly in response to an apparent war on science in Washington when the Trump administration has proposed severe cutbacks in federal funding for scientific research, environmental monitoring, and regulating. One of the groups that will attend this Saturday's march is called 500 Women Scientists. That's become a movement of well over 19,000 women who have taken a pledge, began as an open letter written last November, soon after the elections, by two passionate and concerned scientists, Jane Zelikova and Kelly Ramirez, 
who met as graduate students at the University of Colorado Boulder. The group's mission is to promote diversity and inclusivity in the science community and to push for forward-thinking, evidence-based solutions to critical, local, national, and global challenges. Dr. Zelikova joins us in the studio today. She's a research scientist in the Botany Department at the University of Wyoming. She's currently on leave as a Science and Technology Policy Fellow at the Department of Energy. Welcome to KGNU. Thanks for having me. Let's start by saying what you do at the Department of Energy, just so that we know that, and then we'll find out what the pledge is for the 500 women scientists. Sure. I am a Science and Technology Policy Fellow in the Office of Fossil Energy in the Clean Coal and Carbon Management Division, and I work on thinking about and promoting policies that decarbonize processes that currently use fossil fuels. So that's power plants, but that's also industrial processes like steel making, cement making, and other big polluting processes. What is your thought? Do you think that if we make the world be a renewable energy place, could we limit our coal burning and our fossil fuel burning to the most necessary heat applications for industry? I think that's absolutely necessary in all the models that have looked at the next 50 to 100 years in terms of carbon emissions, basically say that we have to be carbon neutral. And by the end of the century, we need to start taking carbon out of the atmosphere. And in order to do that, we have to have technologies that are capable of capturing carbon from the atmosphere or from any process that uses anything that emits carbon. And we have, a, we have to have a way of storing that carbon for a really long time. Do you think this is possible? I do think it's possible, and that's what my office in the Department of Energy works on. Well, tell me this now. What about your pledge for the 500 women scientists? How did you decide to do that? It was never a conscious decision. It started as a text message string between me and three friends who met in Colorado and who um, have gone all over the world as our lives and our jobs have taken us to different places. But we stay in touch. And we texted each other with pictures of puppies and kids and things we were doing. As the election was nearing, our text messages took a different tone and started to really focus more on politics. On November 8th, it went from just thinking about the potential of a Donald Trump election to the reality and what that would mean for us, for other women scientists we know, for our friends who are immigrants, who are LGBT, who seemingly are threatened by a lot of the policies that this administration promotes. Jane Zelikova, you are a scientist, and now you're also an advocate. How do you balance those two roles that you're in? I think they're not mutually exclusive, and I think the idea that a scientist can't be passionate and advocate for something is one that has marginalized scientists and their role in society. But you know, one thought about advocacy is that once you're advocating, you take a position and you stand by it. One thing about science is that we always think of science as something that's always open to a new way of looking at things and maybe a new opinion based on the evidence. How do those combine? Well, I think as an advocate, you continue to evaluate evidence and you continue to assess your stand. And to say that your stand can't change based on new evidence would be false. So are you seeing that a lot of women scientists agree with this, that it's important to get out and speak their truth? I think women scientists rose up and the fact that we were able to get more than 500 signatures in a matter of hours and we're at 19,000 signatures today just goes to show that the message that we must act resonates. And what do people do when they're part of the 500 women scientists? Is it all on the internet or do people meet face to face? 
So we do both. A lot of what we do is on the Internet. We have a website and a Twitter account and a Facebook group. And our website connects a lot of women scientists and we highlight their work. But we also have local meetings that we call local pods where women can actually get together in person and talk about the issues that are relevant to their communities. So uh, a group of women scientists in Tuscaloosa is going to have a very different point of view than a group of women scientists in Seattle. They're going to be dealing with different issues. Are there different agendas that you have for your scientists or do they come up with their own ideas and topics? The way we've sort of organized our group is that it's both a top-down and a bottom-up approach. So pods drive their local agenda, and pods come up with campaigns that we take nationally. For example, the Washington, D.C. 500 Women Scientists pod started a postcard campaign to write thank you postcards to the EPA for all the amazing work that they do to protect our water and our air. And we took that campaign and we spread it across all the pods all across the U.S. And all the pods across the U.S. wrote thank you notes to the EPA. You will be marching in the march this Saturday? We absolutely will. Thank you and good luck with your work with 500 Women Scientists. We've been speaking with Dr. Jane Zelikova, an ecologist at the University of Wyoming. She's currently on leave in Boulder as policy fellow at the Department of Energy, Energy Office of Fossil Energy. For more information about the movement, you can Google 500womenscientists.org and information about the marches this Saturday in Denver, Boulder, and other communities in Colorado, you can go to marchforscience.com. Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. This is the story of a grand adventure in science to solve a problem involving a global hazard that you can't see, you can't touch, you can't taste, and unless there's a fair amount of it, you cannot smell. Usually you can't hear it either, except for bold scientists doing grand adventures. This is also the true story about an investigation into finding precise and affordable ways to report a global health hazard and do it in a way that anyone can understand. To get started, that's the sound of a gas burner lighting up. People around the world use the blue flame of natural gas to cook food and to heat their homes. This hiss is the sound of natural gas outdoors in a leaky spot where the gas is escaping unburned into the air. In cities around the nation, thousands upon thousands of underground gas lines lie buried just a few feet under our streets, and thousands upon thousands of them do leak. Utility companies check for big leaks, and so do normal citizens, because as one expert points out, the natural gas in our homes includes an additive that makes it stink. And the odorant has been added to the gas so that it can be detected by our noses Joe Von Fisher is a biologist at Colorado State University. He says we don't have many gas explosions, thanks in part to that stinky additive. People would smell it and they would call the gas company and report a leak. The other is that gas companies are required to conduct regular surveys every year or five years where they would have an instrument and they would walk along and look for the leaks by waving this wand over the ground or by driving a truck through their service area trying to observe where they had elevated methane readings. So natural gas explosions are fairly uncommon. 
This story is about the smaller leaks that usually don't get repaired, and that's a problem. For one thing, leaking pipelines waste natural gas. For instance, in Boston, aging leaky gas lines mean the city loses 3% of its natural gas a year. That wastes $90 million of gas that could have heated over 200,000 homes. That's bad in itself, but there's a larger problem. The main component of natural gas is the chemical known as methane. Methane is one of the world's most potent greenhouse gases. We know that carbon dioxide is a potent greenhouse gas. Over a 20-year time frame, it turns out that any methane we let leak into the atmosphere has 80 times the warming power of CO2. That's a lot. Methane is such a powerful greenhouse gas. Some estimates are that leaking gas lines in Boston and other parts of Massachusetts mean that 10% of the state's total greenhouse emissions are created by leaking gas lines. That's a lot. Meanwhile, the gas leaks in most cities and states have not been analyzed because it's been so hard to do. To show one reason why, Joe Von Fisher winds through his research hallways at Colorado State University. He unlocks an office right here that holds a machine about the size of a kitchen freezer, only filled with more gadgets, a lot more gadgets. This is a methane detector. This is our instrument we've used for decades for measuring methane concentrations in air. This special room with this big machine would not be so good for helping check leaky pipes underneath city streets. The key problem, Jovan Fisher says, is you have to bring a sample from the outdoors to the machine. The way that we would historically measure methane concentrations in air would be to take one of these little vials with us to wherever we were going and take an air sample in it, bring it back to our instrument and either manually squirt it in here or use this auto sampler system that we have now. And so these systems were great, but you can't do it in real time. And so it limits the type of science that you can do. I think it would be better if we skipped to sort of what the modern devices look like. Joe's lab has a yellow plastic case that looks about the size of something Black & Decker would use for selling you a portable drill. This is a methane detector. It's super light. It's probably 10 pounds or less. Let me show you what one of these instruments looked like on the inside. Oops, I've started upside down. This is just basically an open tube that air is being pumped through. This is a fiber optic cable that's carrying laser light and shining it into the tube. This detector is so sophisticated, it can tell the difference between natural gas methane and feedlot methane. It's a very impressive machine, except for one problem. When methane is leaking, the machine can take a snapshot of the leak, which isn't really quite enough to tell you how much methane is leaking out. And for Joe Von Fischer's team, that was not enough. Even though it had never been done before, Joe Von Fischer's team still wanted an inexpensive way to find leaky natural gas lines throughout our cities. They wanted to find lots of methane leaks, both their location and their size. And that's not all. They wanted a way to share this information so that everyone from scientists to gas companies to citizens could see the data. So they took a modern approach and began a grand adventure. They went to the Environmental Defense Fund and got support to figure out a way to put modern methane detectors on Google streetcars, and then transform the data into Google Maps that show methane leaks. The first step would be finding a way to not only look at the location of a leak, but also the size of the plume of methane gas. To demonstrate what they did next, 
Joe goes out to an abandoned airfield near Fort Collins. Okay, so this is uh, Duck Kun Yang, who is our, one of our data technicians on this project. And driving the car is Zach Weller. Um, Zach is Dr. Zach Weller. He's a PhD, recent PhD in statistics and who's working on this project as well. All and right. behind <laughs> you is Kira Schoenweiler. 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 And Kira is, works in atmospheric sciences and she does work on how plumes form, what gives them their shape, and how you can measure gas emissions. <laughs> She's another part of our, our team. Resting on one of the runways is a loop of clear plastic tubing connected to what looks like a large scuba tank about 30 feet away. What it contains is methane. So what they're doing with this clear plastic tubing is simulating a methane gas line leak. As for how they'll measure the leak, Joe Von Fischer hops into an SUV that's loaded with equipment outside plus a laptop with data inside. And so what you'll be able to see when you're driving uh, through those plumes is that the concentration will rise and fall uh, as a result of the natural gas leak that we're looking at and we can, we can turn the flow rate down so we have just a little bit of methane coming out, or we can turn the flow rate up so you have a lot of methane coming out. And you can see then what we see when we drive through natural gas leaks of different size. Either it's a little bitty departure from background or it's a big departure from background. Kira, what's our flow rate right now? 10 liters, standard liters per minute. Okay, let's turn it up to 45 or 50, whatever we can max out on. Okay. They let the SUV with the methane detector drive near the leak over and over again, taking measurements. Meanwhile, the team controlling the methane tank tracked their measurements about how much methane they were actually leaking out. All right, so what we'll do now is, is we'll drive through the plume. As we get into where the methane is blowing through the analyzers, the concentration will go way up. If you've ever seen a plume of smoke uh, and how it, it's sort of a lumpy, irregular object, methane plumes as they come out of the ground are the same. They're lumpy, squirrely objects. And sometimes we see a really large, um, signal from the leak and sometimes it, it, it we just don't pass over it. However, what we found is that large leaks always look large and small leaks always look small. We, we spent a lot of time driving this car around and then have, bringing the Google Street View cars around to this airfield and driving them through the plumes um, to sort of calibrate the way that those cars see uh, methane plumes that form as methane's being emitted from the ground. And over time, the best way to evaluate a plume became somewhat simple. Not really simple, but sort of it was like this. Use the speed of the car, its GPS location, and the methane measures. As long as there's methane, keep doing this. That will give you a general edge for the plume. When the plume data from the moving truck's methane sniffer finally ended up constantly matching the amount of methane that had actually been released, bingo! They had found a way to determine the size of a methane leak. Von Fischer says this was something even the methane detector companies had not known their equipment could do, so the first problem was solved. They now had a way to measure methane leaks in the field, including the size of the leak. However, there was still a problem. The data they had gathered was all numbers, and in one minute, it could include thousands of different data points. It was data to make a data scientist very happy, but it wasn't clear enough to help a gas company find leaks. And it certainly wasn't data that would help a neighborhood really understand just how bad their leaky pipes might be. So Joe Von Fischer's research team enlisted computer scientists, who are not only hotshot programmers, but also really good with Google Maps and other stuff like that. My okay. name is Sangmi Palikara. And, and my name is Johnson Kachikaran. So we developed a system to visualize the data 
and perform the analysis to identify the methane leakage in the country. Well, when they first get the data from the methane detector machine, what it looks like is page after page of numbers. Joe and their team collected data for almost four years, and uh, the amount of data that's present here is more than 30 million points. You have to say that no citizen will look at those numbers and be impressed. So how did this team change geeky gobbledygook into something a regular person can understand. This data is collected from this Google Street View car, the sensors we um, put in Google Street, Google Street View car. And uh, those data will be delivered to the one of the Google's storage systems. Colorado State University computer scientist Sangmi Pelakara says Google was very cooperative. They even uh, provided us some computing powers as well. It works with Google's um, cloud storage and Google's BigQuery and um, Google's Fusion tables and um, Google Drive um, and Google Earth Engine as well. So this team used applications you could use. Cloud storage, BigQuery, Google Fusion's tables, Google Drive. Well, you could use them if you understood how to use them. Joe Von Fisher. And we have, thanks to Sangmi and Joe, a tool that allows us to uh, more quickly analyze that data and derive the real products, the nuggets from it. You know how you can use Google Maps to show you dots for all the restaurants near your location. The Google Maps for Joe Von Fischer show dots for methane leaks. Von Fischer's team has color-coded the dots. Yellow for small leaks, orange for medium, red for big, more than 60,000 liters of methane leak a day. According to the Environmental Defense Fund, a red dot means a leak that's as large as one car driving 9,000 miles every day. What about an activist? What if, for instance, someone says they're afraid of fracking and they want to map the countryside around their home? Is it possible that someday they could do that with this data? I think one of the, one of the products that comes from our work is that we have the chance to start to do something that we think of as democratizing information about environmental quality. What about places that don't have roads? Joe Von Fischer says it, it might even be possible to equip a drone for going into remote areas. Could a country such as Russia, which is known for its leaky methane pipes, could a country like Russia use this kind of application? There is certainly an incentive for any organization to reduce its leakage. Presumably, they put a commodity in that pipe. And if they want to be able to sell the commodity on the other end, they'll have more if, it's, if the pipeline isn't as leaky. The bottom line is that one of the biggest groups that has leaky pipelines, the gas companies, now has a more affordable way to find the leaks that need to be fixed. Take the natural gas provider for the state of New Jersey. I think our favorite story with the gas companies is the New Jersey utility PSE&G. There was a utility who was poised to spend $900 million on pipeline repair, um, and, and they unfortunately, even with $900 million, couldn't afford to replace all of their pipeline. They had so much that was leaky. So we partnered with them, and we mapped their utility service area, and we identified parts of the service area that were the leakiest, and we said, here are the parts that are emitting the most methane. If you were to replace this 8% of your pipeline, you would have a 30% reduction in your overall emissions. To me, that was a real victory, to be able to help the utility find which parts were leakiest and to make a cost-effective reduction in their overall emissions. 
Good information has the potential to guide better decisions. Jovan Fischer hopes his team's tool that shows methane leaks on Google Maps will help everyone make better decisions about our energy. If you'd like to learn more about Jovan Fischer's work, we'll have links to his maps on our website. For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by me. Additional contributions by Alejandro Soto and Susan Moran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from the movie Robin Hood and from Nobukasu Takamoru. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.